Kia ora, and welcome to another episode of Talking Dairy, where we dive into the most important topics on the minds of New Zealand dairy farmers. In episode five, we're talking climate change with the Honourable James Shaw, Climate Change Minister and co-leader of the Green Party. Now, climate change is obviously a huge subject, but what we're focusing on today is where dairy farmers fit in all of this. Can farmers have confidence that emissions targets won't keep shifting? What support can farmers expect from the government? Why do we have a 2030 target for methane, while the rest of the economy has a 2050 target for CO2? And do farmers get enough recognition for the work they're already doing? Let's put those questions and more to James Shaw. Well, James, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on the Talking Dairy podcast, and welcome to Dairy NZ HQ here in Newstead. What brings you to Hamilton today? Uh, Primarily, I'm up to talk to the uh, DRNZ Farmers Forum. I've just done that and didn't get booed off the stage, so uh, I'd call that a win. <laughs> and you're heading out on farm after this? Yeah, heading off to Melissa Slattery's farm, and I've known Melissa for a while. Uh, she's one of the leaders in the country at how to do really environmentally friendly farming, so I've never actually had the opportunity to see precisely what it is that she does, but I know she's picked up awards and you know a lot of commendations over time. Well, James, we'll start looking at with, with a sort of big picture view of this. I was reading a quote that you gave to the Herald back in 2015 where you said that climate change is bigger than all of us and if we're going to change the world, we all need to do it. Six years down the track, where are we at with this challenge of uh, climate change? As Team World, are we making progress? Are we stalled? Are we going backwards? All of the above. Um, <clears throat> so if you... Look, I have to say, at one level, the news is not good, right? If you look at the total amount of greenhouse gases that have gone into the atmosphere, half of those have gone into the atmosphere since 1990, which was the year that we committed to reducing our greenhouse gases, right? So we've put as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere since 1990 as we did in the entire Industrial Revolution leading up to uh, 1990. And that is why you're seeing accelerating impacts and a lot of farmers uh, write to me and tell me about the increasing frequency and severity of droughts here in you know, different parts of New Zealand, for example. Now, having said that, especially in the last year or so, whilst we were very distracted by a global pandemic, there have been some really significant moves by some of the major countries around the world in terms of the level of commitments that they're, that they're making. And you've seen the United Kingdom have said, yep, they're going net zero all gases by 2050. President Biden has said that the US will do that, whether that'll stick or not. It's sort of down to the American system. China have said 2060, which is massive. That's a really big deal. Uh, South Korea, Japan, you know, they've all made these uh, commitments. And there's even rumours that Australia (laughs) might make some progress. Um, But we'll have to wait and see. Most of those countries are countries that don't make those commitments without you know, having some kind of confidence that they can actually do it. There are a lot of other countries that have sort of said, yeah, we're going to go net zero 2050 or 2060 or whatever have you. But actually, you know, when you look at their plan and what, what they're actually doing, it's going in the other direction. Although the overall news is in the wrong direction, I do feel like in the last kind of 12 to 18 months or so that actually things are starting to move. Okay. So move in terms of strong pledges. Yeah, and yeah. but but uh, you know underlying plans, right? So when the Chinese make a public commitment, 
you know, if you look at their track record, they take a long time to make a public commitment. And that's partially because they don't like saying something that they're not committed to. And part of that's because I think that they have this real sense of losing face if they don't then achieve it. And as these are, some, I think it's something like 70% of the world's total emissions are now in countries that have committed to being net zero by 2050, or in China's case, 2060. And that's a really big deal, because that's, that's a very, very different scenario than we had two years ago. In, in terms of New Zealand, how do we stack up compared to other nations? You know, good in some areas. Um, what's really interesting is that a couple of years ago when we were arguing about the Zero Carbon Act, that was considered world-leading at the time, but actually um, the, and I know we'll probably get to this conversation around split gas targets and all that kind of stuff, that's now seen as a bit of an outlier. Uh, and when you've got all those other countries are saying, no, they're going to go to net zero on all gases by 2050, and so there's so a lot of them. In fact, I'm not just saying this, right? If you talk to the Prime Minister, she'll tell you that every time she talks to a foreign leader or to an ambassador from another country, the thing that they open with is why are we going soft on our leading industry? And I have the same thing whenever I talk to counterparts from other countries is what they open with. And so it's just a sign of how rapidly the world has changed, I think, and how, how much that political environment has finally woken up to the seriousness of, of climate change that, that actually people are going, oh, you know what, we need to kind of knuckle down on this. From a farming perspective, we spend a lot of time talking about the methane challenge uh, but we often don't get a chance to talk about CO2, carbon dioxide, which is uh, a massive challenge as well. Can you talk to us about the scale of that challenge and what we can expect to see happening in that space, not just from in, in farming but from other sectors? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's huge, right? So obviously dairy has a carbon dioxide component. The milk drying units that run on coal or gas that's a pretty significant component of our of our total emissions on the carbon dioxide side. But, you know, you're also talking about um, the Huntley Power Station. You're talking about steel, uh, aluminium, uh, urea. There's very high carbon dioxide sort of output from all of those. And then the real kicker is transport. Our population's grown by over 20% in just the last 15 years. And every adult person's got at least one vehicle and because we've fallen in love in our cities and places that have no particular need for them uh, we've fallen in love with the twin cab ute in recent years <laughs> our emissions profile from transport's just gone up and up and up it's actually been flat in the rest of the economy for about 15 years but in transport it's just up and up and up and so we have to reverse that at a very steep rate and so you're looking at a cut to our carbon dioxide emissions in the next 10 to 15 years of nearly 50%. Yes. At the same time, we will have population growth during that, that period of time. So that is a massive challenge. And you, and you compare that to methane. I know everyone's obsessed with methane, but we're only looking for 1% a year out of that. And I think they'll actually will do a lot better than that because what we're seeing from the technology and on-farm practice and so on that's emerging is, is actually getting much, much bigger gains there. But that's all, all that we're looking at from methane. You compare that to half out of everything, every other part of the economy. It's daunting. Because mm. farmers might feel sometimes like they're being picked on, right? Mm. But, yeah, so those other sectors, there's a lot of work being done there too. Yeah, there is. And some of those sectors are doing pretty well and kind of grasping the nettle. You know, 
I've got friends in the heavy freight sector who have said, yeah, okay, how do we completely decarbonize our sector in a decade? And that means swapping out basically every 18-wheeler um, on, on the road for a hydrogen or biofuel um, vehicle in a decade. And that's that's a pretty astonishing challenge. So so some of them are grasping the nettle, and others are think, still in a bit of a state of denial about about what needs to happen. But but we've all we've all got effort here. In your heart, do you genuinely believe we can reach those goals? Yes, I do, for a couple of reasons. One of which is that, in it, certainly when it comes to carbon dioxide, in virtually every part of the economy, the technology already exists, and it's really just a matter of making the economics work right. So in transport. You could swap out every car on the road for an electric vehicle, but that's not an economic thing to do. But I think that we can organise things to make that transition really quick. Coal-fired boilers. I mean, obviously, alternative technology exists, right? So it's just a matter of how do we make the economics work to, to get those things installed sooner rather than later. There are very few areas where a solution doesn't currently present itself. One of the hardest parts is steel, high-temperature manufacturing, but even there... You've got zero-emission steel manufacturing coming online in Sweden and Canada with hydrogen-based processing. And what would be great is if we could import that technology here to New Zealand as well. You know, kind of getting into the weeds a bit, but we use iron sands for our steel here, and we've got some really interesting research going on about how you use hydrogen and and iron sands-based steel manufacturing. So even... In most sectors where we're a technology taker, there's actually still innovation occurring locally as well, and I think that's really exciting. Right, getting back to back to farming, James, the, the methane targets in, in the Zero Carbon Act are ambitious for the ag sector, but we hear from farmers that they're up for the challenge, they're, they're pumped for it, you know that they can do it, but they just want to have confidence that the goalposts aren't going to keep moving um, and that they'll be supported to make the transition. So two questions. Can farmers have confidence that those targets won't keep shifting? And what support can they expect to see from the government to actually help them make the transition? Well, one of the reasons why we put in a legislated target for 2030 at 1% a year was actually to provide that confidence about the near term. So knowing that there's a bit of ambiguity about what happens further out, really the important thing is just to kind of get going, actually. Frankly, I think that you know, 1% a year is easy. It's actually less than the sectors gained from productivity gains over the last 10 years. And with some of the new technology that's coming on stream, the growth in organics demand and all of that kind of stuff, I think that you'll see probably some real tipping points, actually. I think that's there. It's a legislated target. I know that the Commission's initial advice in February talked about a little bit more than that, but I think, the, I think that their view is that actually that'll happen anyway, just because of, of the things that are already Uh, that are already happening. The whole idea behind the Zero Carbon Act is that the most important thing in in there is this idea that we operate within one and a half degrees of global warming, right? So you've got this sort of temperature threshold that you've got to meet. Everything that we do should kind of essentially flow from that. Then you've got this idea of these five-year emissions budgets. The emissions budgets aren't baked into the legislation in terms of what the actual numbers are. That's the job of the commission. And the idea is that you've got three of those in place at any one time. So you've got a 15-year forward view, right? So by the time we get to 2025, the Commission will have actually developed what they think the fourth emissions budget period should be, which is the years 2036 to 2040, which 
you know, it's a long way out, right, you know, in farming. And kind of what's happening on farms moving a lot faster than that. But I think what that does is it, is it says, okay, you've got a pathway there. And we worked really hard to build bipartisan support for that structure precisely so that industries of all types can have some confidence about the next decade or two. And the second part of that question, uh, what support can farmers expect to receive from, from the government? Well, I mean, it'll depend a little bit on the outcome of the Hiwaka Ekanoa partnership between the sector and the government, because the idea there is, you know, farmers told us rather than dealing with things via the processes, they wanted actually to be able to pull the levers on their individual farms, which means they need really good information. And that's why what we're trying to develop is a farm level system for measurement, management and pricing of greenhouse gases that means that you can look at all of the sources of emissions on your farm and all of the sinks, the sequestration opportunities on your farm, and kind of net those out and then go, okay, well, I'm above the line, and uh, that comes at a price tag, so then I'm incentivized to get it below the line. And that'll be different in different farms, right, because you've got different soil types, different climate conditions. You might be using different breeds of cow, you know, whatever. And so that, I think, will drive the kind of transition program and the support program, if you like. And can we expect to see more investment in research? There's actually uh, tens of millions of dollars going into research at the moment. My question is, are we spending that wisely? I've got some frustration that, you know, some of that has gone on research for kind of silver bullet solutions. And in the meantime, we haven't actually commercialised what we already know is effective. And I'd really like to um, get the focus now on to how do we roll this out? You know, I mean, Dairy NZ have got test farms, our farm and, you know, others around the country that have shown huge gains in profitability and emissions reduction just with changes to essentially business uh, model, right? So business model innovation as opposed to kind of lab-based innovation. And if we just did those things, we'd beat all of our targets. But that's not where the research money is going. And that, to me, is a matter of focus. You raised something there about what farm, you know, what sorts of things are happening on farm already. I was interested in knowing, because uh, you, you get out onto farm from time to time, I imagine. From time to time, yeah, yeah. When, when they let me out of Wellington. <laughs> yeah. What sorts of things have you seen on farms, on dairy farms around the country that impress you, things that farmers are doing in this area of sustainability? I look, it's a huge variety of things, right? I mean, not far from here, there are um, dairy farms that I've seen that have gone all organic or have moved to once-day milking. And so they've lowered their input costs quite dramatically. And a lot of them actually did that when the farm gate price dropped back to four bucks and everyone was <laughs> in really sweating it. And so necessity being the mother of invention, people were like, okay, well, how, how do I lower my costs? And kind of sort of did that focus. And then like, oh, actually, so I've got my costs down. As the price then recovered, rather than kind of crank back up, they've just kind of maintained that. And then now that the price is well, almost double that, everything is, shall we say, cream on top. So that's been pretty impressive. There's a lot of people who are doing, you know, it's, it, one of the things that's really interesting is is that 
a lot of the work that people are doing in terms of cleaning up their waterways actually also has an effect on greenhouse gas emissions because nitrous oxide and nitrogen, obviously, uh, same sources there. And so a lot of those things actually have dual benefits, which is really good. So in terms of nitrous oxide emissions, actually some of the water reforms will probably have more of an impact on climate than some of the stuff that we're doing via climate change policy directly. You know, people are getting some really interesting things about what breed of cow has a lower emission profile than others. And I was at a, where was I? I was at a, I was in some hotel. Actually, I was at a hotel here in, in Hamilton, probably during field days one year. And, and somebody from the Jersey Cow Association came and hit me up in the bar. And he's like, I've got to tell you about these cows. They're like 15% lower in methane than, you know, others. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to have to take your word for it because I'm I'm not a geneticist. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a massive variety of things going on. It's, I think it's really exciting. You know, I know people often feel kind of pressure about this, but it really feels like this kind of limit that we're running up against is driving just a huge amount of innovation. And when it's coupled with focusing on profitability, then you actually get the greatest gains. And to me, that's, I think, that's something that isn't widely understood, is that if you focus on profitability, actually you get the gains to the environment as well. James, why is it that farmers have a, a twenty thirty target for methane, uh, but the rest of the economy, the, the target for CO2 is a, goes out to 2050? Don't other sectors also need that short-term accountability? Well, they they do, and, and they get it through, that, through those five-year emissions budgets. So we've actually got accountability at 2025, at 2030, and at 2035 through the emissions budgets. But the ag sector fought very hard to separate methane out from everything else. And so I guess as a result of that special treatment, we ended up with legislated targets that sit alongside the emissions budgets that the commission comes up with. I'm not wholly convinced that that was a good idea. You know, I think in an ideal world, you just say, look, it's all in, and then the commission can use a science-based approach and look at where all the gases are at and the different warming effects that each of them have and come up with these different budgets. And to some extent, they've kind of done that anyway. But essentially, having that legislated target was as a result of actually sector lobbying. That split gas approach was... It was a significant one. Can you talk about how significant and do, can we expect to see other countries following So It sounds like that was a, was a no. No. No, in fact, in fact, we're now under considerable pressure to kind of revise that. Although, you know, what we do is when we report internationally, we just translate everything back into a single kind of number. But I have to say that it's not working out terribly well in terms of how we're communicating it with the rest of the, rest of the world. To me, that you know, the, the the split gas piece is important in the emissions budgets, right? Because you take a science-based approach. You say, oh, you've got to stay within one and a half degrees of global warming. You know, there are three main blocks of gas: carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, um, and methane. There are other. There's a small amount of gases that deal with other, you know, CFCs and other things as well. But they're really, really marginal. Those three are the big three, and each of them have different effects over different periods of time. And so in an ideal world, the commission should just be free to go, okay, what's the mix in terms of how you pull those levers to stay within that that one and a half degree kind of pathway? And 
I guess the gold standard that's emerging, particularly for developed wealthier countries like ours who are expected, because we did better out of the Industrial Revolution than the rest of the world, we're expected to go a bit further and faster than just merely the scientific minimum required. Um, We've got to kind of lift the average, if you like, that countries in our peer group are adopting this net zero on all gases. And what that means is it's it's not that people are expecting their methane or nitrous oxide to drop to absolute zero. They might be expecting their carbon dioxide to drop to absolute zero. But then the difference is offset by essentially taking even more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that's, I think, seen internationally as how we collectively ensure that we try and stay within that threshold. And we don't have very long. You know, like the scientific community essentially is saying that we've got about 10 years before we convincingly blow that cap. And, you know, like I said, given that the overall trajectory is still up, that means that especially on the carbon dioxide side, we've really got to crank that down very, very steeply, very, very quickly. So you don't expect to see other countries following our lead on split gas? No. Are there any other countries that have adopted that approach? Not that I'm aware. I think that there are some countries that have set themselves targets for carbon dioxide only. And I think that's because... In most other developed economies, carbon dioxide occupies such a large portion of the total. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, for New Zealand, it, it is different because carbon dioxide is, it's only just, it's about 55%, it's just over half. Ireland is the same. I think Uruguay and Chile is similar, you know, because they've got a similar kind of shaped economies to, to what we do. But for most other developed economies, you know, you're talking. 80, 90% is, is carbon dioxide, and so they've kind sure. of t- chosen to focus on that. But even those, you know, like if you look at the United Kingdom, for example, they've said that they'll, they're doing net zero on all gases, including methane. Methane only makes up 10% of their total emissions profile, but they emit twice as much total methane as we do from a smaller patch of land. In absolute terms, they have a bigger hill to climb than we do, and they're planning to go all the way uh, with it. So... You know, you can imagine some of the conversations I've had with the UK about this, <laughs> especially because we're in a free trade agreement conversation, right? And, they, you know, there's a bit of backwards and forwards, shall we say, about about that. You'll have seen that research earlier this year from, from Ag Research where uh, it showed that Kiwi dairy farmers are leading the world when it comes to producing efficient mm. uh, emissions-efficient milk. That's obviously something that as a dairy sector we're really proud of. Do you think farmers get the recognition or the acknowledgement that they deserve for that? Yeah, well, I mean, at the speech that I just gave at the forum, that's what I led with, because I think it's important to hear that not just from sector leaders, but I think the most important thing about that is that what that demonstrates is what we can do, right? So when you say we've got some of the lowest emissions per unit of production in the world, that's great. And that's dropped by something like 12 to 15% just in the last seven years. You know, if all I'm asking for is another 10% over the next 10 years, then I think that that's doable. The key to it, of course, is that from an atmospheric perspective, the total volume is what matters. And so the efficiency gains that we've had and that kind of leading thing on, on efficiency, what we now need to do is to turn that into a a sort of a total volumetric gain. And I don't know 
you know, how much more land in the country can be converted to dairy. So that there's probably an upper limit in terms of the total size of the sector in terms of land use. What that says then is that you, once you kind of get to that sort of boundary, that your efficiency gains then turn into gains in terms of the in terms of the total volume. And I think that's the story that our kind of big international customers are, are looking for, you know, is to say, okay, that per unit thing's important and how do we go to the next step of turning that into a into total gains. When you're talking to your counterparts um, overseas, do you brag, for want of a better word, about Kiwi dairy farmers? Yeah, look, I, the thing that I talk about a lot is, you know, when they're hassling me about us not putting in place an all gases target is I say, well, cool, we are about to put in place the world's first farm level measurement, management and pricing regime for agricultural emissions. So you might have a target, but what are you doing about it? And without just kind of massive subsidisation, which is the answer that some of our trading partners reach for all the time. And they don't have much of an answer. In fact, usually what they come back to is, well, could you hurry up with it? Because we need one too, right? (laughs) Now, to me, actually, that's quite exciting because it says, okay, if we can crack that nut in the course of the next sort of two to three years, which is the period of time that we've given ourselves, that then becomes an export opportunity because every country in the world that produces food has the same problem. And we're further ahead. If we take this next step, we will literally be world-leading on that. And then that intellectual property and the tools and techniques and the kind of services and the technology that you, and the science that can kind of come off the back of that, that becomes something that we can offer to the rest of the world at a time when it desperately needs it. When it comes to climate change, what keeps you awake at night? Or well, that's assuming you lie awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, oh... Well, there's a lot of things. I think, I think the main thing that keeps me awake at night is whether we can move fast enough in every single sector of the economy at the speed at which is required. That's really what it comes down to. You know, I've, there's a lot of great stuff happening, and I just worry: does it add up to what's what's required? And at the moment, and the reason it does give me sleepless nights is it doesn't add up just yet. Okay. So I asked you earlier about whether you feel confident. Yeah, I think I feel more confident than ever that we can get there. But, but I am not confident that where we are currently at gets us there, right? So I think there's a, I think that things are starting to move in the right direction, and we have a we have a lot more work to do. Mm. Yeah. On the flip side, what gets you out of bed in the morning? That's easy. Right, like I, I got to tell you, this may be kind of <laughs> high stress. This is the best job I will ever have. Right, I mean, we are doing some really exciting things that are going to make an enormous difference for our kids and for their kids, and essentially make the world a safer place in the future than its current trajectory. Uh, and who wouldn't want to do that? Other than. Uh your work as a, as a minister, what other kinds of things do you, you know, because <laughs> we see you and we think you, yeah. you live and breathe climate change. You must have some things you do outside, I, I'm outside of work. I'm a very boring dinner party guest. <laughs> um, uh, I've got to tell you, I, I actually quite like getting out in the country when I can, getting out, of, getting out of Wellington. And I say this as someone who was born and raised and lives in Wellington, given the current job, it's quite nice to get out 
So um, actually, this next week, uh, I'm going to spend a couple of days um, up on a farm, about an hour's drive north of, oh, sorry, about half an hour's drive north of Masterton, where uh, they've set up a, a tent on a deck looking out over, over the countryside, and it'll just give me a couple of days to kind of contemplate and remember what this is all about. That's great. And James, just finally, what's your one parting message for farmers? I think the main thing is to know that we can do this. And, you know, there's a lot of good progress that's being made. People are chucking a lot of resource at this. And I think things over the course of the next two to three years will become increasingly clear and increasingly simple and increasingly easy for people to just pick up because I know the one thing that people say to me most often is, well, what can I do to make a difference, right? You know, just on my little patch of land, what can, what, what can I do? And that really is the thrust of what this whole work program is about, is to sort of put the power to make a difference into the hands of individual farmers. Thanks for tuning into Talking Dairy today. We really hoped you enjoyed the episode. A big thanks to James Shaw for coming on the podcast. We appreciate him dropping by at Dairy NZ to chat about climate change with us. For those of you who missed it, we'd recommend you go and listen to episode number two. That's where Dairy NZ's principal policy advisor, Roger Lincoln, did a great job of explaining in simple language the Climate Change Commission's carbon budgets proposal and what it means for dairy farmers. You can find that episode and others at dairynz.co.nz forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time.